0: You're listening to Founders On Air with Steve Orenstein and Mike Rosenbaum. Today we have with us Rod Bishop, co-founder and managing director of J-Ride. Hey Rod, welcome to the program. Good to be here. Thanks for the invite. I was going to say, tell our listeners a bit about J-Ride and and what you guys do. J-Ride is like booking.com or Expedia, but for passenger
1: trips, ground transport, airport transfers all around the world. So we're connecting you as a traveler with airport shuttles, private cars, ride-hailing brands you might know and love, like Lyft, Kareem, so that you can always find your way to and from whatever destination you want to go to all around the world. 3,300 transport companies, 81 countries, 1,500 airports, so you never, ever get stranded when you're away from home.
0: Sounds amazing. Yeah, awesome. So tell us a little bit about how you got started in this entrepreneurial game entrepreneurial game you know when i first
1: started doing companies i didn't know what an entrepreneur was i didn't know what a startup was until after i'd started j Write. it was quite kind of funny thinking about these terms in the earliest days i was always interested in technology i mean i'm thinking about i don't know napster with my Winamp plugged into a stereo or i'm thinking about you know writing gw basic on an amstrad sort of kind of things as a young guy i mean this this goes back a few years right so always thinking about technology always looking into technology and then it kind of naturally came as I was, you know, deciding to start a business that you know, it was less about billable hours and more about building something that was an asset that would be a technology company. And so, yeah, that was the start of the J Ride journey. Cool. And, and, and how, how long now has it been for J Ride? Oh, and for like you as an entrepreneur? Oh, for me as an entrepreneur, I mean, oh look. Again, I didn't know what the word entrepreneur meant, so it's hard to know what counts. <laughs> you know, I've had a hitchhiking website in the past. Was that truly a business or a community? So hard to tell. I was working in an NGO uh, in okay. New Zealand, working with the New Zealand Transit Agency on, you know, community alternatives for transport, for example, carpooling, ride hailing, these sorts of things. Ride then when we started in January, uh, 2012, we incorporated the company, you know, it's kind of the sum of all of these experiences. And then, you know, that was the official start date, January, 2012.
0: Yeah, cool. And it sounds like you've always had a passion for tech, right? Is that sort of what you thought you wanted to go into sort of growing up? What did did you want to be sort of when you were younger?
1: Oh, when I was younger? Oh, geez, that goes back. (laughs) No, look, I just love good ideas, really. I mean, and that was always the thinking is that, somewhere out there, there are ideas that can change the world. And how do you get exposed to those ideas? And I think many, many people have those ideas and maybe don't necessarily choose to act on them. So how do you refine an idea? Uh, How do you select the best one? How do you then get the gumption and willingness to actually commit to it and go do it? How do you execute on it? How do you get the help you need for it? You know, all of these sorts of kind of challenges come along the way. But I guess, you know, how I originally first started thinking about it was, you know, a good idea can carry you. And so starting with that, and then the rest of the journey, you actually find out that the idea was worthless all along. And it's the gumption, it's the get up and go that really takes you places. And what
2: was that like moment in time where you suddenly decided like J-Ride was it and you were going to start executing on,
1: on it? Now, that's an interesting one. It goes to how we discovered the idea at all, which is kind of an interesting, longish story. Shall I jump in? Yeah, go there? for it, please. So look, I'd been, I'd been in and about the transport space for a very long time and One of the things in transport is uh, there's very many different ways and people who approach it. There's governments building highways, there's transit agencies putting fleet on the road, you know, local governments war with parking, there's rental car companies, there's all sorts of different mesh and fabric. And yet every single day we sit in gridlock for an hour on the way to the office and an hour on the way home, there's got to be better ways, right? Like it's a a messy industry, uh, but everyone uses some kind of transport every single day. I got attracted to the big problem, like the scale of that. This is something that every single person on earth does every single day. Yeah, yeah, is yeah, try to go yeah. from somewhere to somewhere else. How come it's so bloody hard? Is the initial attraction, right? So that led me down a variety of paths, and one of the things that ultimately led to J Ride was being a backpacker of all things. So talking circa twenty two thousand five, two thousand six, traveling the world, leaning heavily on Tripadvisor as an example. Okay, Tripadvisor, fantastic big company started two thousand, gone come a long way, but. Ultimately, TripAdvisor's user-generated content boils down to two questions asked over and over again. One, what's good to do here? And two, how do I get to that? And the funny thing about a forum is it's fantastic for discussing what's fun, but really bad for transit planning. Yeah. And so that how do I get to a place would never really ever answered your questions. So that was the kind of the key insight that had us thinking about transit data, transit information. Around about the same time, Google was doing the same thing. They had this Google Maps product. You might have heard of it, right? But at the time, it wasn't, you know, everywhere in the world. And people were using it to try to get places, directions to and from, driving directions, walking directions, these sorts of things. So it was a natural extension for Google to consider, how do I get public transit on here? Similarly to... You know, the TripAdvisor problem where it's very hard to discuss transport. It's quite complicated information. Google, though, being Google, didn't have to like act like a normal human there. They invested millions and millions of dollars in publishing a new open source standard called GTFS, the Google Transit Feed Specification, which allowed them to work with state transit agencies, get their public transport timetables onto maps. Now that's how come every man and his dog can find a public bus route because yeah, they, right. they championed this standard. We saw that around about 2011 and we said, this is an opportunity. Previously, there's never been a standard for communicating transport information. Now there is one, but it still doesn't solve the travelers' needs. Because if I'm in downtown Taipei and I don't speak the language and I don't carry the currency, you can tell me all you want about the public bus network. I'm still not going yeah, to go yeah, yeah, get yeah. one. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Like, there's other transport out there for travellers. Yeah. So it didn't quite nail that TripAdvisor problem. So we started leaning into it and we started saying, how do we aggregate, standardise, create a language for information about transport that suits the traveller? We're talking door-to-door rides, shuttles, limousines. These days it's ride hails. It was that 2011 inflection point where we noticed that it could be done and we set out to do you know, our own flavour of it ourselves. Yeah, awesome.
2: And so J-Ride was one of the first I guess, early stage startups to, to list on the, on the ASX. And what was that process like going from being an unlisted company onto a listed
1: company? and I don't mean to challenge you, but we're standing on the shoulders of giants here. I mean, the ASX public market is very familiar with e-commerce businesses, yeah. right? We're talking about What If, the Cobalt Bike Speed, we're talking about Webjet, a multi-billion dollar travel search e-commerce platform in its own right. I mean, quite besides thinking about Seek or yeah, REA exactly. or car yeah. sales or Redbubble, I mean, e-commerce is actually particularly well understood by Australian public market investors. And so when we were thinking about where to take this company, you know, and looking for what might be next, trying to find people who understood e-com, you can't go past the ASX. Yeah, right. So that was one of the parts to think about it. And then why to do it? So think about, I mean, thinking about how the travel industry evolves, right? Think about a large group like Expedia or Booking and how they think to kind of, you know, find subject matter expertise in a single vertical at a time. You know when you want to start a, a company and travel you naturally look to the big guys and you say do you think this might be something that's useful for them in the future right but as we've taken kind of a, a longer term view we start to see that Jay Ride is possibly a long-term independent company as opposed to necessarily just a, a bolt-on acquisition to a travel shop. Yeah. Okay. Thinking about how transport's changing, thinking about how ride-hailing came out of nowhere and surprised the pants off the taxi industry, right? Thinking about how car ownership is declining, how traffic is still a problem, thinking about how every car manufacturer is starting to talk about having their own ride-hailing network. Yeah. Like we see long-term that there's this dynamic – evolving ecosystem of different ride types, different suppliers, different solutions for different destinations. And we start to think five, 10, 15, hundred years from now, how will the traveler have any idea what's going on? If not for an independent company like Jayride that structures all of the solutions and just says, Here you go. Yeah, right. So thinking about long-term led us to again, being publicly listed.
2: Okay, yeah. And how much money did you raise before going public?
1: Including the pre-IPO and IPO, we've invested $18 million in our technology stack to date. Yeah, right. So that's the that's the transport technology, mapping-based transport platform that we use that underpins uh-huh. our global rollout, all the things we've done.
0: And what's it like, Rod, being a listed entity versus a private entity? What can you share with other founders out there that um, perhaps today private and sort of thinking about a listing somewhere down the track? They're very different rule books. <laughs> Yeah,
1: Um, I mean, uh, you know, I think uh, when you might uh, consider to go from private to public, the thing that will immediately catch your attention is you need to disclose everything all the time. And it's not so much, it doesn't manifest in terms of like, oh, that's hard work, because presumably you're already writing quarterly letters to shareholders and these yeah, sorts of things. Yeah. It more manifests in terms of, oh shit, I thought this was like my core IP, you know, and now I have to disclose it, and I don't know how I feel about that. Private companies tend to keep their numbers very close to the chest. That's more of a psychological hurdle than anything else, and once you get over it, you realize it's just the same stuff. You're still focused on the numbers that you believe matters, you're still talking to everybody about why you think those numbers matter, uh, you're just doing it in a public setting instead yeah, okay. of a private setting. Okay. But yeah, the rules then are slightly different. You have to pay attention to compliance and disclosure and regs and all of these things. But that's what the experts you surround yourself yes. with are for. And if you can find the right team who support you, who teach you all the things you don't know, yeah, it's look, it's not. It's not the end of the world.
0: That's great advice. And um, you often hear people say, you know, publicly listed companies, they've got an extra product to worry about. It's the share price. <laughs> and, um, you know, I guess quarterly reporting and all that sort of stuff. How do you sort of, enroll or align, as we were talking about earlier before the program, your shareholders or your investors in a long-term vision when you have to report quarterly? How do do you sort of do that?
1: Alignment's a really interesting word. I hope I get the opportunity to talk about alignment quite a lot. Uh, I I tend to do it whenever I I can. And alignment's not necessarily just about short-term or long-term, but it's about aligning different stakeholders who have different interests to each other's interests. It's really the key. And when you think about how an e-commerce marketplace works, we have at the minimum supply and demand side to your marketplace. And in our instance, we have B2B and B2C demand. Right? We have supply, we have team, we have shareholders, we have a board. We have all sorts of different people who all have different, slightly different interests and alignment, different things that work. You kind of imagine if you might, a, uh, don't know, one of those radio masts that stays upright despite being very skinny, On the basis that there's many different ropes attaching and anchoring it from all directions. And it only stays standing because everything is holding it up together, right? You remove one rope, the whole thing comes down. So finding that nexus point, that way to surround that one objective with everybody's different interests, that's the thing that keeps a company like Jay Wright standing. And so whether that's, you know, in the economics of an e-commerce marketplace where you're trying to make a transaction on sale you know, providing enough value to each party that they choose to keep using you through their own volition or equally aligning that to a separate marketplace of buyers and sellers on a screen on the stock market, you know, making sure that always every party has some skin in the game that aligns with everybody else's skin in the game. Yeah, that's the art. (laughs) That's the art.
0: Maybe one day you'll write a book on it for all of us.
1: It's part of our onboarding at Ride, Right. I mean, not the stock market piece so much, but the alignment between stakeholders in the marketplace. Okay. And whenever we think about anything, it's always trying to find the nexus point, trying to find that thing that you can do that everyone, despite all of their different needs and wants, will be satisfied by. When we design our team structure, when we're building our org chart, when we're working out who to recruit, we're designing teams to make sure that always they have us stakeholders interest, not all, just one at heart so that that team can go into bat for their stakeholder against some other team or together with some other team that also fights for some different stakeholder. And eventually, through beating the rough edges off, they get to a solution that works for both. I can imagine as we get more mature as a public company bringing that sort of thinking to the way that we work with the the whole world. Okay, very
2: interesting. Just going back to sort of, I guess, that listing process, like how long did that take and how painful was that?
1: Yeah, we did it a different way to most companies would do. Most companies would have a strong sponsoring in-house broker take the process. Uh, We got a bit cheeky and decided to do it ourselves. We self-listed compliance listing for spread. Uh, I wouldn't repeat it. I don't think I would recommend to do this. The particular kind of landscape that we're in uh, is important to talk about. We were, I don't know, 2015 in the US and it was going very, very well. The U.S. had become half our business. And I challenged the company. I said, guys, I want to do this in 100 more countries. Let's do it. What will it take? And the company rightly told me I was mad and that the technology platform that we'd built wouldn't scale in that way and that we needed to re-architect. So we scoped the project in 2016, wrote the information architecture. In 2017, we went out to raise $10 million to fund the build. Later, 2018, we launched the software. 2019, now we've gone from five countries to 81. We're global. We announced it in July. I'm very happy about it. But coming back to that capital raise, we knew we needed 10. We didn't really need more than 10. We'd done a lot of work to make sure that we knew the right number. Yeah. And our pre-IPO and IPO were going to be five and five. And then the pre-IPO was oversubscribed by existing holders all the way up to eight. And so at that point, you know, what we should have done is kept the IPO exactly the same size and gone out and got sponsoring broker and done it all you know, by the book. And instead we said, ah. You know, we don't need the capital and we don't need the dilution and we're more than capable enough to list ourselves. And so we did it. Self-listed, got public. I think the problem that that creates, though, is that no one knows you. Yeah, okay. You know, okay. You're, you're live there, you're on the screen, your existing shareholders are strong supporters, but, you know, who's, who's telling your story? Yeah, right. And so that was the piece that we missed in our first year of listing, although we've you know, subsequently gotten quite strongly on top of that. Um, but, you know, in terms of how to do it, yeah, look, get, again, it comes to that thing I said before about, you know, how to make the public markets easy on yourself get strong advisory team, get smart people who know the work and, and lean heavily on them.
2: Yeah, okay. So getting that good broker to sort of assist with selling that story. Yeah, and
1: advisors and corporate um, you know, team members and yeah, company secretary, advisory on the board, yeah, and, okay. you know, whoever you want. Yeah, cool. Yeah, whoever you think you need. Um, be, shall we say, candid with yourself about your lack of expertise in certain areas and then go you know, strengthen and prop up your own weak spots.
0: Yeah, cool. So earlier you mentioned that you run a B2C and sort of B2B or B2B2C platform. What's the focus today and sort of has that changed over time? Is is J-Ride sort of the brand you're trying to build or or does it matter today? Is it that you're just trying to help people get from A to B in their transport, their, their, their travel? So the core asset,
1: our secret source, is that we can work with more transport companies around the world than anyone else. Uh, for the very first time, we pick up the phone and call a transport company and we, we talk to them in the language that they want to talk about their fleet and their vehicles and their drivers and their distance to destination and their, you know, the airports they service and the way that they provide customer care and all of these different things that they do. It's the very first time they will ever have had a travel industry platform contact them and talk their language. Uh, the fact that we can do it anywhere on earth in any currency, in any country, for any transport company, regardless of business rules, that's the technology advantage that we've built ourselves with that $18 million that you asked about. Uh, that's that's our core strength. And so then where do you take that? Because certainly that's valuable for travellers, so we go B to C, but it's also valuable for travellers via the travel industry. For example, large travel management companies, online travel agencies, meta-search companies, You know, there's a whole ecosystem here of people who really want to provide great traveler service, and in our book, that means door-to-door. So uh, the business, roughly speaking, is 50-50 in terms of travel trade and in terms of traveler direct. Travel trade, obviously there's big names here, right? So we work with Flight Center, we work with Expedia, Skyscanner, you know, you name it. If they're a big player, then we're somewhere in their ecosystem or wanting to really help them and really want to get in there. And that's good because they're 800 pound gorillas and they can send a lot of eyeballs your way, right? On the B2C side though, I think that's a really interesting opportunity too, because if we make a relationship with you for your, you know, ride in Seattle next week. And you're going on from there to some other country around the world. If you don't have to rethink that decision about you know where to use what to, what to use, you know, if you can just rely on this to always work for you everywhere, that's a really strong brand proposition. We had a, a couple visit our office at one point. They English second language. They we took a very long time to work out what was going on. What was going on was they were staying across the street from our office in in the York Hotel, and they'd booked their Sydney Airport transfer with J Ride. This is couple of years ago before we were anywhere outside of Australia in the US. And it had gone very well. And so they went, oh, the next stop's Fiji, go on the website. Great. Of course, this is going to work. It's a credible looking international. Nope. No, we weren't weren't live in Fiji yet. And so rather than assume as we knew that we were only live in five countries, they assumed that, oh, something must be wrong with the hotel Wi-Fi. So they walked across the street to try to do it with our receptionist. And after about half an hour of muddling around there in reception, we managed to hack it together for them somehow. But it was a great education to us that the traveller wants to be retained. You know, transport's one of those things. You just want it to work. And if it works for you everywhere, then you're just going to keep coming back. And so our job as a company is to make sure we can serve the traveler's needs no matter where they are, no matter where on earth, no matter what they need. It goes back to the technical transport mode. In be yeah. front of mind. Yeah. yeah. Well, re- retain a customer. Just be freaking useful wherever yeah, they are. Yeah.
2: yeah. <laughs> and what's it like going from just servicing Australian customers to being able to now globally and having... So many customers across the world.
1: You know what? It's not much different. Yeah. Yeah? Traveller turns up, they want something, we either have it and convert them or learn. And then we have to go and get the transport industry to shake it out and find that price and that rate and that coverage, that vehicle, load it, try to get them the next time. And so it's just a more accelerated version of what we've been doing for seven years. So when you turn that switch on, when you
2: suddenly went from a few countries to as many countries as you are today, did you see a sort of big jump in sort of
1: revenue and bookings? And The number one thing that's jumped out, for what it's worth, this is July, right? July, yeah, right. a okay. couple of months okay. ago, we okay. finally made the announcement that we're global. And that's 81 countries. But more importantly, it's 85% of all the world's air trips wow. go through airports that we service. So it's effectively everywhere. I mean, eventually we'll get everywhere, you know. I guess yeah. Mongolia, Sub-Saharan Africa, there's yeah. probably some places where we haven't quite cracked yet, uh, but we'll get there eventually. Right now, 85% is close enough for most travelers to always find what they need here. So that was only in July. Okay. Um, the number one thing that's ticked up, though, I can tell you, is inbound interest from those big B2B partners. And I can even tell you why. So the, I mean, the previous landscape might be, if I'm a large travel management company, and maybe I don't do transfers at all today. I don't do ground transport. It was a bit of a mess, fragmented, hard to work with. Uh, J Ride comes to me and says, "You know, we'd like to, we'd like to give you five countries worth of airport transfers." Well, okay, so it's on me to find the other hundred countries. Yeah, yeah exactly. Oh, it's too hard. So yeah. I'm just I'm, look your transfers thing. I'll put it down the bucket. I'm going to do cruise next, and then I'm yeah. going to do homestay. I'm going to do. The list is always a mile long. Yeah. Uh, now we come to them and we say we've got the whole world. It's turnkey. It's one solution, one contract. Here it is, and you're done. It's technology yeah. if you want, or it's a web yeah. portal if yeah. you want. Anything you want, here it is. Yeah, it's a much more compelling yes, proposition. Yeah, yeah. So that, that's, that's the absolutely. thing that's that's the thing that's changed in in the get go. Uh, and then long term, you'd expect that B 2 B. Uh, Is followed by B2C retention, you know, travelers keep coming back. Yeah, okay. And so does that
2: mean you've now got offices in different countries or is it all running from people in Australia?
1: Sydney and the Philippines, that's it. No boots on the ground, all remote. Oh, and and sorry, and I should say Madrid also. Okay. Don't forget Madrid.
2: And and do you run your
1: team in the Philippines like 24 hours or they're just,
2: what sort of hours are they running?
1: Yeah, different teams have different hours. Uh, For example, the customer care team provides round the clock, 24-7 customer service. Okay.
2: Yeah.
0: Awesome. So what are a couple of um, marketing tactics, perhaps some guerrilla tactics that you can share with um, our founders listening today?
1: So we lean really heavily into search and I guess the most helpful way that I can describe this to a person who's maybe going to start to try to build their own e-commerce marketplace is to talk about it in the context of a chicken and egg problem, right? Like if you're an early stage marketplace founder, you're facing a chicken and egg problem. (laughs) <laughs> uh, because if you have lots of supply, you get lots of demand, you get lots of supply. So where do you start if you have neither? Um, and the solution is actually for us, it was, it was just one little thing, which is to work out who has the most valuable content that people are Googling for. Yeah? So in some marketplaces, maybe a services marketplace, you know, people might be Googling for trades in our marketplace they're googling for transport there are reverse marketplaces where people list the skills that they have or the jobs that they want i mean you can kind of take this either way but work out and it's only ever going to be one which one of your two-sided marketplace is the content that people actually google at and then try to structure as you capture that content Try to structure that in a way that's both SEM, but also SEO friendly. And and what that does is that kind of starts to bootstrap your adoption. You'll find customers from places that you've never found before. You might also be able to get very long tail with it, right? And then you might be able to programmatically drive that long tail expansion. You might be able to add paid layers on top of that. You might be able to programmatically create organic layers still on top of that. And so so these sorts of things then can kind of find you some adoption. And it also really strongly validates what people are searching for and what they want. In the early days of J-Ride, for example, we didn't focus exclusively on airports and we didn't focus exclusively on door-to-door service. We had, I think, eight different types of transport. We cast a very wide net. And then as we observed the user behavior, we found what was stickiest, what was attracting most traffic, what was creating most conversions. And we actually ripped the rest of the platform out and have only now that door-to-door airport transfer service yeah right so in the early days again i I guess it's a marketing tactic casting a broad brush to observe your user behavior and work out what's in it for the customer and you know what it is that's most compelling for them and then once you really feel like that's the place to go pair it back strip it down focus on this Um, and so you see many other places many other marketplaces might do that too and how long did it take you to sort of work that all out I mean, we're seven years old. We're still working it out. You never never (laughs) stop learning. Uh, For example, last year we re-added the ride-hailing services because they're just, I mean, they're so popular these days and everybody wants to know if, you know, Lyft and Uber and Kareem and Get and Grab and all of those other brands, you know, whether they're in this country, services airport in the city, people want that discovery too. So we re-added that. Um, We've been very sparing with re-adding. Okay. uh, Because there's just so many ways to grow this company. more airports more destinations more service types more travelers more retention more there's always more so just as you as you go try to be really focused and measured with your next step yeah
0: cool so can you share with us you know we've all had hairy moments in our businesses one or two sort of hairy moments that you've had and sort of how you overcame those uh that adversity i suppose
1: Hairy moments abound, right? Every day is a hairy moment. Um, <laughs> it's a roller coaster, right? <laughs> yeah. Look, I mean, it's the founder story, right? Highs and lows. Probably more important to talk about how to handle it, in my opinion. Uh, and, and this is going to sound cheesy, but it's just, it's just one of those things. Um, there's many different places to start this, and I don't want to come off as holier than now, but, you know, stress management and, you know, keeping on top of yourself is, a, is, is part of the game. I talk very often about how this game is a mental game. Resilience. Resilience. Sure. Yeah. Resilience. A different way to talk about it would be to say framing. So simply, have you ever noticed that stress and excitement have the exact same physiological reaction? Sweaty palms, elevated heart rate, a little bit jittery, right? It's the exact same physiological reaction. So what is the actual difference between stress and excitement? tends to be a mental difference. It tends to be, did I elect to be here? Did I choose this or not? Because if I chose to be on this roller coaster, this is amazing, (laughs) right? And if I didn't choose to be and somebody put me on this damn roller coaster, this is terrifying. And the difference is not in the physiology. It's in, you know, whether or not you feel like you had agency. And so I tend to, again, in terms of like managing that, would encourage everyone to always remember that you chose this. You're not a victim of circumstances. This is your company and you wanted this. You know, you can change your mind tomorrow if you want, but I bet you won't, right? Because this was your dream, and so that kind of reframes your stress to excitement. Sometimes, some way, I think often about you know what is what does a very successful person look like? You know, maybe something you've seen on movies or television, something that you might aspire to. And to me, the very successful person is a very calm person. Absolutely, nothing phases that person. There and there. I don't know, office or on the beach or something, but they're totally chill no matter what comes at them. And so then simply be that person, right? So, you know, try to make sure that you manifest that future state of success. Uh, You could raise the question, you know, if my future successful person is calm, are they calm because they're successful or are they successful because they're calm? I think it's the second one. They they achieve that level of success because of their ability to cope with the 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 challenge in the world.
0: Thanks for sharing that, Rod. That's, that's a great perspective. So, looking back, was there something that you sort of built or did as a business um, that you would say has become sort of a critical factor to your success to date?
1: Alignment is definitely one of those things. So, you're going to work with many different people. And, and even outside of e commerce marketplace land where you have like very discreet supply and demand or whatever your two sides of your marketplace are, even in something that's you know, straightforward like a SaaS business or selling an FMCG product or whatever. At a minimum, you've got consumers, you've got a supply chain, you've got a board and you've got management, you've got team, you've got stakeholders, right? Different people want different things. And so the number one thing I think that's instrumental to that success is finding that alignment. And it's about really understanding each one of these parties, what it is they want, right? So you might've heard the acronym with them, what's in it for me? right put the hat on be in that party's shoes and try to understand what it is they want and so that's the onboarding at jay to make sure that everybody always understands for every stakeholder what's in it for them and i think really only the only way to ever find that out is to go talk to the customer yeah. I, yeah. I know many early yeah. stage startups that get caught in that oh i need to build some stuff first trap no you don't pick up the phone and sell something right if people pay you for it they wanted it right it doesn't even have to exist yet we'll build it later right and that's not about overpromising under delivering just tell them it's not built Right? see if you can get some pre-subscribers or something along these lines yeah. that really helps to crystallize the with them and once you crystallize the with them for every party that's in your ecosystem then you find your point of alignment uh, yeah so we made that we made that canon at jay and i, I recommend it yeah. yeah excellent
2: and what was it like like that that first moment you turned on
1: the platform and uh getting that first booking oh, i seem happened. to remember the first booking or the first couple of bookings And we weren't taking bookings until 2013 because we spent the first year of the company just, I mean, talking to people, but but also kind of building some data. The first bookings, May 2013, I think there were three of them, two in Australia, one in New Zealand, one long distance ride to Hamilton. Matter, matter. That was it. (laughs) Uh, And it felt pretty damn good. And bookings were so few and far between that we actually configured our admin screen to play a little song if ever a booking (laughs) came through. You know, in these it days, changed. for context, right? Oh, no, it was actually it was um the it was I can't remember the artist. Uh, uh, it's not about the money, money, money. <laughs> <laughs> it's not about the money. Uh, was the was the clip? Um, these days, if you had it, they'd be ringing all the time, right? Yeah. We're doing hundred thousand yeah. trips a quarter, so it's Incredible. it's it's a little bit different than kind of hanging out all day and oh, the siren didn't go off today. Oh, okay, maybe <laughs> maybe tomorrow. <laughs> Yeah, awesome. So it felt
2: felt pretty good. Yeah, cool. And like how far along did you realize at what point that you've got something
1: here and your customers are liking the product and using it? You know, and this comes to finding with them is before we even built it, right? You know, before we knew that we could make a transaction, we were picking up the phone, calling transport companies and trying to get them to pay 30 bucks a month to list an ad on our website before we had a website, before we could take ads, we had a call list and yeah, we okay. picked up the phone and we told them what it is we wanted to do and we told them what it had cost. And yeah, so awesome. when they when they started paying, that's when we knew. But yeah, that was okay. before we built anything.
2: And so building these marketplaces where you've got two sides, like how did you go about sort of getting those two sides built and matching the supply and demand? So, yeah,
1: so with supply, again, we started with data and then we watched user behavior. and That was what allowed us to kind of pair back the supply to the things that were stickiest. And with demand, uh, we used kind of our expertise in in structuring the data to make sure it was Google, both in terms of then running like SEM campaigns on top, but also in terms of structuring the content well for SEO. And so you found then you kind of narrowed in on your stickiest, most saleable content, but also then you were marketing it to eyeballs that could discover you through low cost or no cost means. Yeah, okay. uh, and so that was how we first started out. The funniest thing is that we didn't even realize that this was a travel industry business when we first started. We were looking at it from the transport industry's point of view. You know, hey, how does a transport company go to market? Can this be a classified website or something for the transport industry? Uh, you know, it was only quite, you know, a year plus into the piece that uh, one of my team members, Mark, said, I wonder if travel agents would like this. And so what did he do? He started picking up the phone and calling travel agents and started trying to sell it. And it worked. Yeah, right. And at which point we discovered, okay, there's a whole travel industry here with a whole problem around customer service, customer satisfaction, fragmentation of the market, door-to-door, VIP, all of these sorts of yeah, concepts yeah, yeah. that we hadn't encountered. Um, and so, again, that, just that discovery piece uh, is always just about getting on the phone and talking to people, finding yeah, cool. out what they want.
2: And can you talk, about, talk to us about sort of a, a moment in time where you've had like a hairy moment and where you thought, oh, this isn't going to work out or been really stressed?
1: Oh, this interview?
2: <laughs> <laughs> ah, come on. <laughs>
1: no, look, I, look, every day has its own challenges, um, whether it's, it's internal team stuff or whether it's, you know, client-facing or whether it's markets-facing or whatever it is. There's, there's always challenges. And so, again, I guess it's important always just to contextualise it. You know, how far you've come, how big this is, how big this could be. You know, try to make sure that that little problem frames correctly as little and drops by the wayside.
0: So I'll just ask one last question, Rod, and uh, thanks very much for your time today. I know you're a busy guy running a big business that's growing very fast um, and I'm sure you've got a, uh, a bus or something to catch uh, on j Road. But um, what's, what's some of the best advice that you've received along your journey and, um, and what advice would you have for founders listening around building a, a team of mentors, advisors around them?
1: Yeah, don't be shy about going for help. I, d- I don't know any successful person who wouldn't willingly help you if you just ask. One of the other things that I do these days is I'm a a non-executive director of Fishburners, which is a co-working space, but also kind of the original co-working space for the startup community in Sydney. And the reason why Fishburners is great is that community. And one of the things that j did at the get-go, which I chart a lot of our early success to, is that we started at Fishburners. Because when you start a business like, like a high-tech business especially, but I guess in general, any business, you're going to be a domain expert on the thing that you're doing because that's why you started it, right? You've seen the opportunity, you know the subject matter inside of that, and away you go. For me, that's transport, my technical co-founder Ross, it was e-commerce marketplaces, the team we hired, business-to-business or or B2C, these sorts of sales. What do we know about capital raising, right? Or accounting or finance or, you know, nothing. Nothing at all. Affiliate marketing, co-registration, all of these sorts. I mean, we didn't didn't know anything. I mean, we didn't know that we didn't know is the worst part. And so, you know, being willing to, first of all, admit that you're not an expert in all fields and then surround yourself with experts in fields. When we were in an environment like Fishburners as a co-working space, there was always somebody on the floor who knew the thing that you needed to know or at least could point you in the right direction. And so it was just a matter of getting exposed to it and then not being shy about coming forward and asking. That then puts you in an interesting position, right? You're calling a favor from someone who they're already successful in their own way and there's no way you'll be able to repay them like for like. And that's how ecosystems get built because now you don't pay it back, you pay it forward. Yeah. Right? Who is the next person that you can help? What is it that you know that they don't yet? You know, are you available for them? And so this is how... You know, maybe an ecosystem like Silicon Valley got built. I believe it's happening in Sydney too. I see it every day. Right, Second and third rung founders providing the knowledge and the skills to the people who are starting up. And so, yeah, really excited to be a part of it. Recommend always getting involved in community. It's the first place to go.
0: Thanks, Rod. That's super powerful.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I I find it also interesting, like, when I've always reached out to someone and sent them an email and people are very often happy to, to really be able to help out or have that coffee or have that phone call give you that little bit of advice and
1: people and you don't expect it yeah. If you've never done it yeah, before you're absolutely. like oh no this person won't won't yeah. bother with me and take it. no of course you will yeah of course they will
2: well thanks for joining us uh, on founders on air it's been uh, been great having you and listening to your story and sharing any of the learnings that you've had uh, it's been yeah been a pleasure having you on, on on the podcast today absolute pleasure thank you and coming up uh next week we've got uh guy pearson ceo and founder of practice ignition who recently just raised dollars. It'd be great to uh, hear his story uh, next week. And uh, don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcast or Spotify and look forward to speaking to you then. Speak soon. Thanks. Bye.
0: You've been listening to Founders On Air with Steve Orenstein and Mike Rosenbaum, a podcast designed for founders by founders to help you scale your business. For show notes and to ask questions for future episodes, go to foundersonair.com. Thanks for listening and don't forget to subscribe.